Throughout church history, God has raised up some hugely impactful preachers from the ancient homilies of Chrysostom to the 19th century prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon. These men have wielded the sword of the spirit and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most prolific preachers in all of world history was George Whitfield. Spurgeon may have preached some 3,600 times, but Whitfield delivered at least 18,000 sermons. Preaching through Britain and the American colonies before mass media, as it was estimated some 10 million people witnessed Whitfield preach in person. And his farewell sermon at the Boston Commons drew a crowd of 23,000, which was the largest crowd ever assembled in the Americas at that time. But with the advent of mass media, no preacher has ever been able to rival the scope of Billy Graham. Longevity worked in his favor. He ministered over 60 or six decades, and he preached to a live audience totaling some 210 million people in some 185 countries. But radio and TV took his impact to the stratosphere as he reached his lifetime audiences measured around 2.2 billion. So a lot of people to hear you preach. We could list countless more men of God who faithfully preach the word, impacting the lives of countless more people. But if you take the value and the impact of every preacher in the past 2,000 years and you put them on the scale, they wouldn't even register compared to the greatest preacher, Christ, the Lord himself. Of all the great prophets who went before him and of all the great preachers who've come since, none even begin to compare to the glory of Christ. Now, Jesus did draw crowds of thousands, but it's true. He never preached to a crowd of a million or he didn't reach billions of people while on earth. His ministry was only three years long. It was focused on a small corner of the world. But what set the preaching of Jesus apart from all others was his person and his words. And for one, Jesus was not just a herald of the kingdom. He was the king of the kingdom. I mean, who cares if Jesus didn't personally reach billions of people? He's the divine son of God who created all those billions of people. And the impact of his preaching went on to move billions and more than move, transform. That's because the word Jesus spoke was not derivative. He was the word of God incarnate. And he came to reveal authoritatively the will of God to mankind. And speaking of authority, that's how Jesus preached as one with authority. He didn't need to quote rabbis or scribes or anything. He just spoke and every single thing he said carried with it the authority of of God. In contrast, no other preacher has ever preached by his own authority. What inherent authority does any man have over any other to tell him what to do? None. Every preacher's authority is entirely derived from the word of God. But Jesus just spoke, and out came the word of God. And that is nowhere more readily apparent than in the monumental sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever. And that's our text for today and for likely many months to come. This morning, we're just going to get acquainted with this greatest sermon ever. And to help us do that, why don't you take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I mean, historically, we might say that the greatest sermon ever has been Jonathan Edwards' classic, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
But if the Bible is allowed to compete in that race, it's, it's not even close. Like the Sermon on the Mount outpaces all the competition. Recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount is the, the fullest or the longest exposition of Jesus we have in the Bible. But it's only 111 verses long. You can read it in about 10 minutes. I mean, certainly we have the shortened version. Matthew and Luke are giving us just the highlight reel of what Jesus taught on that day. Jesus was known to gather a crowd and it would turn into a three-day teaching conference. Who knows how long this sermon really went. But what's recorded here under inspiration is what the Lord wants his people to know, to have for ages to come. And trust me, there's, there's plenty in here. These 111 verses are so potent. They're filled with spiritual truth in concentrated doses such that when you distill them, that each verse is enough to, to feed you for days. What is this sermon all about? What makes it so penetrating? Well, its primary subject is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was confronting the external religion of his day. And what was true of the religious people in Isaiah's day was still true in Christ's day, namely that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Jesus was going to show the true nature of his kingdom and his righteousness. This is how we honor God, worship God from the heart. He expounds on what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, and he urges us to make sure we're not found on the outside. And John Stott rightly said of the Sermon on the Mount that it is, quote, the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do, end quote. Now, I feel like a lot of preachers today try really hard to concoct some golden one-liner in their sermon that it can be posted on Instagram later and just wow the masses. But every single verse in the Sermon on the Mount is like a golden one-liner. Like every verse. And that's probably why it's captivated people the world over ever since. This is true of the early church. The first 300 years of the church, the, the early church fathers, they quoted Matthew 5 more than any other chapter of the Bible. And they quoted Matthew 5 through 7 more than any three chapters of the Bible. It's safe to say that the Sermon on the Mount is the most studied discourse ever. And there are books written about all the other books written on the Sermon on the Mount. However, in 21st century America, I think the Sermon on the Mount has fallen on some tough times. A Gallup poll found that just one third of Americans can identify its source as Jesus. And many think it was a sermon preached by Billy Graham. (laughs) Maybe the reason it's fallen out of favor has to do with its high standard. People can't live up to it. People don't want to live up to it. Not even those in the church seem up to the challenge. I mean, few Christians seem to be living out the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. And few preachers address the hard saying, so what do you expect? There's many people who are happy to make a big fuss to keep the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. But I've never seen anyone fight to have the Beatitudes posted in a courthouse. That's probably because the law is easy to weaponize, grace not so much. That might make you wonder though, like, is the Sermon on the Mount grace or is this law? What is the nature of the standard of righteousness presented in the Sermon on the Mount? 
That question has been debated ever since. Christians have been divided for centuries over how we are to properly understand Christ's teaching here. And that, in many respects, is probably hamstrung its impact. But still, it's a question that has to be asked, is this sermon for today? Should it be relegated entirely to the past or even entirely to the future? Is this how the Lord expects us to live? Is this the standard for those who are already in the kingdom of heaven? Or is he teaching us how to get in to the kingdom of heaven? Is Jesus presenting an unattainable standard on purpose that's meant to just drive us to grace? These questions are absolutely vital. And until they're answered, until we understand the intent of the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't do much good to to go through its content. And people love to pluck their favorite saying from the Sermon on the Mount to fit their agenda. And turn the other cheek, do not be judged, lest you be judged. Ask and it will be given to you. But first, we need to make sense of Christ's agenda in giving this whole message. What's it all about? How does the sermon relate to us in the church today? In the weeks and months to come, we're going to start unpacking this sermon line by line, verse by verse, unpacking and appreciating all the the one-liners in here. They're worth our time. We really can't even begin to do that, though, until we see the big picture. We have to get the big picture right. And thankfully, it's not an unsolvable mystery. The text and the context are, are sufficient to guide us. But we have to do the hard work, and that's largely what we're going to do this morning. This morning is going to be kind of a special introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go through verses 1 through 2 of chapter 5. Let's help us get acquainted with the sermon overall. But we want to appreciate the original setting and the original giving of the Sermon on the Mount. But this is one case where the author's intent really is everything. We need to know what Jesus meant by this. We have to grapple with that. So hopefully by the end, we'll be able to settle just how much this sermon is meant to impact our lives today. We can get started by just reading the first couple of verses, the introduction, Matthew 5, 1 through 2. This is where Matthew writes, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. I'll give you a little outline here as we go through this, just to attach your thoughts to. But let's first start with the teacher. Number one, the teacher. And the teacher is obviously Jesus. And we've been introduced to the person of Jesus in Matthew's gospel so far, but not his teaching. We've come to know Jesus as the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God. We haven't really heard him talk much though. Matthew has recorded just a few words of Jesus so far, and he's told us about his teaching ministry only in preview form. We're back in chapter four, verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In chapter four, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Thankfully, though, now we we finally get to hear what Jesus had to say. Matthew's just given us a little trickle of the words of Jesus so far. But in chapter five, the floodgates open. 
And really in chapters 5 through 7, we get a proper taste of the teaching ministry of Jesus. And then chapters 8 and 9, we get that taste of the healing ministry of Jesus. And that pattern repeats throughout all Matthew's gospel. He gives us five major discourses or, or sermons of Jesus altogether. But none compared to the first. Now here above all, we, we see Jesus speak with authority. He just opens his mouth and words of life pour out. And unlike other Jewish teachers of the day, he, he doesn't quote any rabbis, any scribes, no other authority. Now it's typical of the day. Each new rabbi would completely build his teaching authority on what the previous rabbis had said. He would base his teaching on what, what's already been said by the rabbis, but not Jesus. His authority came from himself. And the crowds even recognize this. Go to the very end, the final two verses of Matthew 7. And Matthew explicitly brings this out at the end of the sermon. 7.28 says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds, crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And clearly this was a teacher unlike any other. Now, speaking of the crowds, number two, the audience. Number two, the audience. You know, back in chapter five, verse one, it says Jesus saw the crowds. This word refers to a multitude of people. How many? We can't say for sure. We know one time Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 people, but they were only counting the men. So really that that could have been 10 or 15,000. And we get the impression here that it's a similarly large crowd. Back at the end of chapter 4, we saw that preview statement of Christ's Galilean ministry, but it gives us a sense of how, how big it was in its scope. Like chapter 4, verse 25, the verse before, it said, Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. It's from north, south, east, and west. People were just streaming to Galilee to see Jesus. And this was a mixed audience. Some were his disciples in the sense that they had made some commitment to follow him. At this point, he was followed by the 12. And then there was an outer circle as well. And then they're joined by countless others who've just come to this movement for various reasons. Seems like many were gathered to witness and partake in the healing ministry of Jesus. We knew that that drew thousands. Others were probably attracted by the spectacle of it all. Some people see a crowd gathered. They don't know why, but they're just drawn to the crowd. They want to just go check it out. I'm sure there were some curious onlookers, some truth seekers. And I bet there are even some people who are just dragged along by someone else. It's kind of like church today. Sometimes you're just dragged along. But there's all, there always seems to be doubters and detractors in Christ's crowd you know, the self-righteous religious leaders against whom he would have much to say. But in all, this must have been a diverse, mixed crowd. And there's one critical point to gather here, though. Namely, that while everyone in this mixed crowd would have heard the Sermon on the Mount, it was primarily directed to his disciples. Right? It was primarily directed at Christ's disciples. This sermon is not evangelistic. I mean, contrary to his earlier preaching, there's no calls to repent. 
His main purpose is to paint the picture of discipleship. Now, surely some were loose and maybe even false in their commitment. That's why he includes several warnings in here to disciples, to professing disciples. But nonetheless, he aimed this teaching at disciples. That's clear from verses 1 through 2. The crowds have gathered, but it's his disciples who gather around him when it's time to teach. And it says he begins to teach them. And the nearest antecedent to that is his disciples. And the same distinction is made in Luke 6. Jesus was, the the parallel version, Jesus was surrounded, it says, by a large crowd of his disciples, then an even larger crowd of just onlookers. But when it came time to teach, Luke 6.20 says, Jesus turned his gaze toward his disciples and began to speak. It's clearly aimed at his disciples. We'll reflect on the significance of that later. But just know that Jesus is speaking throughout to people who have, in some sense, claimed to follow him. This is a message for those who have been set apart, called out from the world, called to live as lights. You get this from the sermon itself. The real audience seems to be those who have God as their heavenly father. That's actually a huge thread that runs throughout the message. For example, chapter 5, verse 16. We are to let our light shine before men that we might glorify our father who's in heaven. Chapter six, verses four and six, we are to give and pray in secret that our father might see what we do in secret and reward us. Chapter six, verse nine, we're told to pray our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Chapter six, 32 and 33, it says our our heavenly father knows all that we need. We just need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 11, our father in heaven is good. He delights to give good gifts to those who ask him. But then we're warned, chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who claims Jesus is their Lord will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of his father. And there's more. It's just a sampling There's plenty more we'll reflect on later, but just keep in mind, this is a message Jesus intended for children of God and disciples of Jesus. Now, moving on to number three, the setting. The setting. Verse one says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. We know that Jesus has just relocated the headquarters of his ministry to Capernaum which is a little town on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's still in that vicinity. In both Matthew and Luke's account, after Jesus finishes, or finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he enters Capernaum. So likely we're, we're pretty close to that, that area. Now when it says mount, don't think steep mountain like Mount Everest. Just think rolling hills. In fact, this word for mountain can just as equally be translated the hill country or refer to the the hillside. And that's what this is because that's what surrounds the Sea of Galilee. Jesus went up from the shore to one of these hills, which would have served as a perfect natural amphitheater. And some of them even leveled off like a plateau would have been a perfect place for a crowd to assemble, sit comfortably to hear Jesus teach. It is interesting to note, though, in verse 1, how it refers to a mountain 
with a definite article, meaning it doesn't say he went up to a mountain. He went up to the mountain, which makes us wonder, like, what does that mean? What's the mountain? And some use this to establish the parallel between Jesus and Moses. Because that phrase, that exact phrase, he went up to the mountain, is an exact verbal parallel to Exodus 19.3, which describes Moses going up to Sinai to receive the law. Now, we don't dispute the fact that, that Matthew is presenting Jesus as, as one greater than Moses. We saw that all throughout his birth narrative. And don't forget that Jesus shares the same name as the primary successor to Moses, the one who would actually lead the people into the promised land, Joshua. You know, Jesus, or Jesus in Greek, don't forget, that's the equivalent of Joshua in the Hebrew. And we believe that one greater than Moses is here. So I don't think Matthew is trying to evoke thoughts of Mount Sinai here. Because he uses mountain with, with a definite article many times in his gospel. More likely, I think this is just referring to the mountain or the hill, the spot that Jesus preferred for prayer, for teaching, for ministering to the crowds. I think this was just Christ's go-to spot such that it became known as the mountain. You remember Jesus, many times he slips away to pray throughout the night to a mountain, the mountain, but his disciples always know where to find him. I just think this is probably the spot, a spot they all know, they all go to for gathering. Now, speaking of Moses, though, we can most definitely agree that Jesus is the great prophet to come of whom Moses spoke. Moses foresaw in Deuteronomy 18, 15, he told the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Then God himself said in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 18, God said, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth He shall speak to them all that I command him. And Jesus is that great prophet to come. And when he speaks these words of the Sermon on the Mount, God is speaking. You must listen to him. If you reject the words of Christ, you're rejecting the words of God. And that Jesus intended his words to be heeded is also clear from his posture. Number four, the posture. You see that verse one, Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Notice his teaching began after he sat down. You know, here at Berean, I used to teach a Wednesday night Bible study. We would gather in the fellowship hall. We had a meal together every Wednesday and then I taught through the Old Testament. And I did that teaching from a seated position. Because it was informal discussion time. It was a good time. But when it's time to preach, when it's time to uh, authoritatively declare the word of God, it's time to stand up. And today, the preacher stands, you all sit. Back then, it was kind of the opposite. That the seated position was seen as more formal and more authoritative. You still see glimpses of this today, like, like when the president if the United States wants to address the country on something extremely serious, he doesn't stand at the podium. He sits in his chair in the Oval Office. And likewise, when popes claim to be speaking infallibly for God, 
They're said to be speaking ex cathedra. That literally means from the chair. I think less chair, more throne, but the picture is authority. And that's how it was in Christ's day. When a rabbi was teaching his disciples as they were walking on the road, that was their informal discussion time. But when he wanted to just declare truth to them, when he wanted to be taken seriously, he would sit down and they would gather around. And that's what we have going on here with the Sermon on the Mount. There's this larger crowd in the vicinity, just probably waiting to see what Jesus will do next. But when Jesus takes a seat somewhere on that hill, that's the cue to all of his disciples. Like, oh, we know what's happening. It's time for teaching. They all gather around. They sit down around his feet. And the crowd would have taken it as their cue. Like, okay, it must be teaching time. There's going to be a message. They huddle up. They gather in. The message is about, about to begin. And they all get settled. And speaking of the message, that's number five, the message. Let's look more at the message itself now. Number five, the message. Verse two says, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now saying he opened his mouth seems a bit obvious, but the phrase is just a Hebrew idiom for, for making an important pronouncement. Uh, this is not going to be a mere talk. This is not a seminar this is not a discussion. Jesus is not there to, to share some new theory he had or discovery. Now he opened his mouth and out came divine teaching on the kingdom of heaven. And who better to teach on the kingdom than the king of that kingdom? Now speaking of, we mentioned before how the kingdom of heaven is the central theme to the Sermon on the Mount. It is. And before we saw how the kingdom of heaven was the central part of his preaching message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But here he's going to instruct his disciples on the character of that kingdom and how that, that kingdom must be embodied in them. Thoughts of the kingdom occupy the first words. Verse three, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the sermon, we're told to seek first his kingdom. We're told to pray, your kingdom come. We're told that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we won't even get into the kingdom. We're also warned, again, chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to Christ, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of the Father in heaven. And time goes on, we'll learn more how Jesus was, was really confronting the Jewish misconceptions of the kingdom in his day. The Jews were, were largely expecting a purely materialistic kingdom where the Messiah would be a military and political leader. He would free them from bondage to Rome. He would reestablish Israel and the world stage. But Jesus made clear, though, that his kingdom is not of this world. Now listen, yes, there are physical and spiritual dimensions to the kingdom of heaven. And just as Jesus is Lord over all, he was granted authority over heaven and earth. And so we expect both the spiritual and physical realm to come under his lordship. So yes, there is a physical, even political dimension to his kingdom. And that's yet future. 
the Jews were misguided in a lot of their expectations, but they weren't entirely wrong to expect the government to rest on Messiah's shoulders, Isaiah 9, 6. But their problem was they emphasized the physical dimension of the kingdom to almost the complete neglect of the spiritual dimension of the kingdom. And Jesus is here correcting that, especially since the kingdom reign he was going to be inaugurating in his death would be spiritual. It would be residing in the heart. The Lord's plan would be to use regenerated people filled with his spirit together in his church to now represent and spread the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And this explains why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not concerned at all with social reform. There's no politics in this sermon. There's no social agenda in this sermon. This is all about personal transformation. This sermon is not a roadmap to world peace. It's a roadmap to peace with God and the fruit thereof. Now, if everybody on the planet had peace with God, you would have world peace. But until that happens, this message directs disciples to be the salt of the earth and a light to the world. Now, one more note on the message itself. It does have a type of flow and a basic outline to it. You know, it begins with the Beatitudes, and it's not hard to say that they're the most important part of the sermon, that you cannot underestimate the importance of the Beatitudes. The, these, these sayings phrase the whole, or frame rather, the whole message. They let us know we're in a context of grace, not law. It's vastly important. They'll be the subject of all of our time next week and, and for many weeks. Long to, to behold the Beatitudes. But after that, that introduction, there are three main sections. I don't really lean on the analysis of the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones here at this point. You know, first is how to live in light of the law of God. How to live in light of the law of God. In the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus gives six examples clarifying how disciples are to live out the deeper heart of God's law. Second is how to live in light of the presence of God. How to live in light of the presence of God. Chapter 6, he begins by restating that the true purpose of the three main pillars of Judaism, of almsgiving, prayer, and uh, fasting. And the purpose of these is not to be seen by men and to be honored by men, but rather to be seen by God and to honor God. These have to be done in light of God's presence. Not man's presence. And speaking of that same presence of God brings peace and contentment to the one who's been weighed down by the God of money and filled with anxieties. That person needs to live in the presence of God. And finally, the third section is about how to live in light of the fear of God. Chapter 7 shows us this is a God who judges and that should caution us how we judge others. Jesus then contrasts the ease of entering the kingdom with the difficulty. Judgment is coming. God looks at the heart, but the heart is revealed by deeds, by fruit. And since judgment is to begin with the household of God, you should take heed. You need to make sure you're bearing the fruit of righteousness depicted here. You need to make sure you're a doer of this word. 
not merely a hearer only who deludes himself. And that is how the sermon ends. But you put it together, living in light of the law of God, living in light of the presence of God, living in light of the fear of God. And there's much more to it, but that's, that's a helpful way to break it down. Much more could be said, but I think at this point, you've gained a good, solid introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And already, hopefully, you can appreciate it more. And for our time this morning, there's really just one question left to ask together. And it is, who cares? They're like, who cares? Why should we care? Should we care? This sermon took place some 2,000 years ago. Is this really how we are supposed to live today in modern 21st century America? Is this sermon really meant for all disciples of Christ still? Or some of them? Or none? Now, what is the ongoing relevance of the Sermon on the Mount? It's been hotly contested. We need to address that. So we'll finish our time with number six, the relevance, and spend a little time here. Number six, the relevance. Since we have a little bit of time, I want to first expose to you some of the ways people have missed the relevance of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, first, some have relegated the entire Sermon on the Mount to the future. This is the view of old dispensationalists, really hyper-dispensationalists, who claim that the sermon has no bearing on the church today. That wasn't meant for the church. It was meant for future Israel in the millennial kingdom. But this is wrong on several counts. That for one, nothing in the test or text rather says or suggests that it is meant for a future age. And more importantly, pretty much every principle Jesus teaches here can be found taught elsewhere in the New Testament as applied to the church. You just take the epistle of James, you know, Christ's half-brother. He heavily relies on the Sermon on the Mount in his teaching, in his epistle. Really, this just comes from a misunderstanding of the already and not yet nature of the kingdom of heaven. Because we do believe in a future earthly dimension to the reign of Christ that includes a restored national Israel. But we also believe his kingdom reign was properly inaugurated on the cross. I mean, having resurrected and ascended, Jesus has authority over all heaven and all earth. And he is currently exercising that kingdom rule right now in the church, in the hearts of all those who have his spirit. That's where he's exercising his most direct reign. And this sermon is the ethic of that kingdom reign. And that's not just for the future, that is also for the present. Now, secondly, there are some who believe the Sermon on the Mount is for the present, but not quite how you might expect. And one of the products of 19th century liberalism was something called the social gospel. And that they jettisoned the core teachings of the New Testament, like the atoning death of Christ and his resurrection. Like, let's, let's cut those parts out. But they kept some of the ethic of the New Testament. You know, modern man can't possibly believe in a virgin-born, resurrected, divine Messiah. Like, that's not real. But they like some of his teachings. They like some of the things he said. I say some, but not all, because they didn't like some other things he said. But in a way to support their agenda, they, they cherry-picked the ethical teaching of Jesus 
largely from the Sermon on the Mount. You know what Jesus said about nonviolence, turning the other cheek, helping the poor, was seen as a roadmap to social progress. I mean, this sermon tells us how to fix society. If only more people did what Jesus said, then the world would be a better place. I'll tell you more in sermons to come, but you know, Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount. He called himself a Sermon on the Mount Christian and thought this is the ethic the world needs. But just the Sermon on the Mount, not the writings of Paul, not the Old Testament, just the Sermon on the Mount. But such people fail to understand that apart from divine grace and power, people aren't going to do what Jesus said, and they can't. And without the gospel, which is based on the supernatural atoning death of Jesus and resurrection, apart from that power, the, the world will never look like this sermon. It's like one commentator boy said, quote, they tried to urge Jesus' ethic on those who did not possess his life, and they could not do it, end quote. And this is why the, the social gospel has never worked. You have people who, they don't love Jesus. They don't submit to him as king. But then they try and live out some of his words, and it just doesn't work. Only a matter of time before they get frustrated, exasperated, they fall short, they don't see results, and they turn on him. You just can't separate the ethics of Jesus from his gospel. And if you want to remake Jesus into some wise teacher without his atoning death and resurrection, you've just made another idol, a different idol, that's blind, deaf, and dumb, and can't save, can't transform. Well, lastly, there are those who put the relevance of the Sermon on the Mount entirely in the past. This is referring to those who view the sermon as a second law that Jesus is basically giving here Ten Commandments, 2.0. The Law of Moses, 2.0. That Jesus is correcting the misinterpretation of the law by the scribes, but he's still upholding the standard of the Law of Moses for God's people. Why would Jesus do this? I thought, we're saved by grace. Yes, we are. But they say that the whole reason Jesus gave this sermon on law was to drive us to grace. They say that Jesus is giving here an impossible standard on purpose. That no one can live like this. It's impossible. You know, Christ here is going to teach that not only are murder and adultery wrong, but so are lust and anger. He's going to teach that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we won't enter the kingdom. In fact, he's going to say at the end of chapter 5, you have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But who can keep this standard? Who can live like this? No one, just like the Old Testament law. And so Christ's purpose then, so they say, is to just make us despair. He's giving us this unattainable standard to make us despair so that we might be driven to him for the gift of salvation, which is by uh, grace through faith. Now say this, it is true that Anytime man sees a presentation of the righteousness of God, it's going to convict him and condemn him because we're not perfectly righteous. And that is an appropriate response to the Sermon on the Mount from the unsaved. God's standard always exposes our need for the gospel of grace. And I sincerely hope any person who doesn't know Christ would, upon reading this sermon, 
and seeing God's perfect righteousness, that they would run to Christ for mercy and grace and forgiveness and transformation. And while all that's true, you know, the view that the Sermon on the Mount it belongs to the category of Old Testament law and therefore isn't directly for living today is still wrong. It just misses the intent of the sermon. Remember, the sermon is for disciples, those who have already received and believed the gospel of grace. This is a perfect place we can start talking about the, the true relevance of the Sermon on the Mount for today. And let's just remember, how are we made righteous before God? I mean, righteousness is a huge theme to the sermon. It's about righteousness, kingdom righteousness. How are we made right or righteous with God? It's not by law. The law condemns because we're sinners. You have a sin nature represented with the law. All we do is violate and fall short. None will be justified by the law. Rather, we're made right with God by grace through faith. I mean, the perfect one verse for that is Philippians 3.9. It's where Paul expresses that his desire to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Can't say it any better than that. Our righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. That we're made right with God as his gift of grace through faith. But that does not mean we are now lawless. We're no longer under the jurisdiction of the law of Moses. That's true. But we're not without law. In salvation, we're now brought under this thing called the law of Christ. And that still gives us a standard of righteousness or right living. Now, the thing is, though, our relationship to God's law has changed. This law is no longer written on tablets of stone. But per the new covenant, it is inscribed on our hearts. And through the new birth and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to actually keep this law, to walk in its ways, to live up to its standard, not in order to gain righteousness, but simply in order to demonstrate the righteousness that's already been given to us. And so, yes, as we first approach the Sermon on the Mount, or really any teaching of the New Testament, we're going to see an impossible standard. Like th- this is impossible. We see a measure of righteousness of which we can never attain on our own. And that should make us despair in our sin, our inability, our unrighteousness. But we're not left without hope. Christ is our hope. And just like the Beatitudes say, only when you recognize you're poor in spirit, you're spiritually bankrupt before this God. Only when you mourn over your sin and rebellion in him will you find comfort in Christ. This sermon should drive us to Christ and his cross for righteousness. But then, having believed in him, having been made new in him, given his spirit, we're supposed to then come back to the Sermon on the Mount and realize like this is how he lived. This is the life of the Savior to which we are to be conformed. This is what his kingdom and his righteousness looks like. And now that we've been given a spirit, we're empowered to live it out. 
And so as believers, we are meant to come to the Sermon on the Mount and pursue his righteousness, not by the flesh, but by his spirit. Being made righteous in position, we are now to to produce righteousness in practice by his spirit. And we're not going to do that perfectly until the kingdom comes. We, We will fall short still. But as the Beatitudes say, the true disciple hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And God delights when his children bear this fruit. You know, in fact, another big difference between life under the law of Moses and life under the law of Christ is this. And and rest assured, the Sermon on the Mount is a reflection of what's called the law of Christ, which he elsewhere summarized with just two laws, right? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Christ. But for the believer, life now under the law of Christ is not a burden. It's a blessing. It's freeing. This is why James, remember, half-brother of the Lord, he referred to the law of Christ, but he calls it the law of liberty. Right after saying that, he quotes the Sermon on the Mount. That's James 1.25. I mean, law of liberty, that, that sounds like an oxymoron. Right? Isn't law what restricts our liberty? Isn't the law that thing that keeps us from doing all the things we want to do? But when you realize, though, you really see the problem. We have these sinful natures that desire unrighteousness. And in the Old Covenant, the Old Law did nothing to change that nature. And this law was restricting our flesh, but it gave us no hope, no power to overcome. It was a burden. And uh, it was crushing. But Jesus came not just to replace a law, but to transform us, to do something about that nature that hates God's ways. He came to give us new birth. I mean, didn't we just learn about John the Baptist who testified that this Jesus would come baptizing, not just in water, but in the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who gives new birth, new natures that now love God's law his righteousness, his ways. I don't need a law telling me to do the things I already want to do. That's not restricting me. That's just reminding me what I already want to do. And so thereafter, Christ, after salvation, he gives us this law, but it doesn't bind our will. It frees it. His law is not a shackle. It's not a straitjacket. It's a light post. It's illuminating the way of life. And it's a way now we, we love. We don't have to be told. We're we're happy to walk on this way because we love him. And yes, while we still have the flesh, we're sinners. So we will stumble on this way plenty of times. But we can now attest, like the Apostle Paul, that, that we joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Which means in our new hearts, we want to live like this. We still have the flesh, we stumble, but in our heart of hearts, we want to live like this because he's made us new. You should come to the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, I I want to put off lust and anger and vengeance. I want to pray and give to the poor, not just to be seen by men, but just to honor God and please God. I want to store up treasure in heaven. I, I want to trust God for my life. This is what God wants too, because his ways are best. So when you put it all together, 
The Sermon on the Mount is a depiction of the fruit of righteousness that will come out of a true believer. I'll say that again. The Sermon on the Mount is a depiction of the fruit of righteousness that will come out of a true believer. That is its intent. It's talking about one who's already repented, believed, gone through the Beatitudes and what they mean, and been born again. When it comes to earning righteousness, this is an impossible standard. When it comes to displaying righteousness, when it comes to being conformed to the image of Christ, then by the power of his spirit, this is precisely how we are to live. The last question then really is, is what about you? Is this how you are living right now? Is this how you want to live? In this sermon, Jesus will tell us that not everyone who claims to be a disciple is actually saved. We're called many times to examine ourselves. You can do that one way externally by looking at the fruit in your life, the deeds. Do you bear any witness to the fruit of righteousness in this sermon? Do you live righteously? We'll see that later. But you know, there's also an internal test you can take. It's one which only you can perform because no one can see into your heart of hearts. Only you can search it. But here's what you can do. You can go home. You can read through the Sermon on the Mount. And then just honestly ask yourself, does this sound like a blessing to you or a burden? Right? When you look at this extreme standard of living, and this is extreme, all parts of it. But is there any part of you that, that desperately longs to live like this or not? I mean, I know the flesh is weak, but is any part of your spirit willing? Because if you look at this sermon and it just repulses you, if you know that in your heart of hearts, you don't actually want to do this, then there's a pretty good chance you're not really a disciple. But I would hope that realization would only then humble you and break you and just expose you have a nature problem. You have a heart problem that you can't fix. This is still God's standard of righteousness, apart from which none will be saved. You can't earn it. You can't do anything about it. But this is why Jesus came in the first place. He actually did live a life of perfect righteousness. And he went to the cross to pay for your sins, to, to offer you his forgiveness and his righteousness And now if you believe in him, if you forsake your sin and yourself and trust him, you'll be saved. He'll make you, he'll give you this righteousness and a new heart along with it. But I'll tell you what though, before you go to this kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven has to come to you and live within you. Like Christ said elsewhere, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And that's something that has to be true for all of us. In the end, though, I would say that, yes, yes, we we very much need the Sermon on the Mount today. We need to study it. We need to know it. And more importantly, we need to be living this out, especially in the church. Because, look, we don't expect the world or the culture to live like this. And they're in rebellion against the king. How can we really expect them to live by his kingdom righteousness? But I'll tell you what. They need to see it, right? That the world desperately needs to see a picture of kingdom righteousness. 
They need to behold the glory of that kingdom. And they need to hear the gospel of that kingdom. That they might be convicted. That their eyes might be opened. That they might enter in through the narrow gate of Christ. Who's going to give that to them? Who's going to preach that gospel to them? Who's going to give them a picture of the kingdom? What do you know? That, That just so happens to be the mission of the church. You know, if you're here last week, we made the point that, that Christ's Galilean ministry on earth really was like a pretty good preview of his kingdom, and the power of his kingdom. But you know, it's over, right? His, his Galilean ministry is long over and he ascended. He's not on earth giving us a living preview, so to speak. We have in his word, but how's the world going to see? Well, he left us behind the church. And when you stop and think, do you realize what the church really is? The church in this age is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. We're like the embassy for this foreign country, the kingdom of heaven. And we who are members of the church, we retain a dual citizenship. We live here below, but we represent the one to come. But the church now is the place where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The church is where Jesus is worshiped as king. And the church is where his righteousness dwells. And one of the main purposes he did all this was so that we now, the church, might be the preview of the kingdom of heaven to the world. We are now the ones to put on display his kingdom and his righteousness that the world might know. The Lord calls on us, all Christians in every generation, to embody him and his righteousness while preaching the gospel of the kingdom to reach the world until he returns. And this is a call we need to take to heart. You can't just leave from these messages and do nothing and, and not respond. You know, we're going to come and we're going to hear this message from the Sermon on the Mount time and time again. The American poet Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, quote, Most people are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under, but few will use it as a rudder by which to steer, end quote. But for us, it has to be both. We can stake our claim here. This is how we are to live, and then, and then we must do it. And so set your courses already by this greatest sermon ever. As we learn, we are going to learn, this is how we must live. And then as Jesus will say, Matthew five sixteen. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and then glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's our mission from the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We thank you for the the word of the King this morning and his message, his greatest sermon that still instructs. This was meant for his people, now the church, to live. To know you, Lord, and, and your righteousness, your standard of righteousness, which we can never attain on our own. But this is now how we are to live. We thank you for the amazing grace of God in Christ. Because we confess how we fall short. Who, who can f- fill out this standard? But it is only by the atoning death and resurrection of Christ that our sins were put away forever, that that perfect righteousness was credited to our account, that we were given a new heart and a new Holy Spirit to dwell within it, 
This is all what you've done for us, Lord, and it's all to your glory. And we want to do something now for you, not to repay you just because we, we love you. We are uh, thrilled and delighted by the, the gospel of grace we've received. I pray that you purify the longing of our heart, all of us this morning, that you would, you would come to make us hunger and thirst more for your righteousness, your kingdom, that we might truly live it out. And that we must do. This world is sick and dying. The darkness pervades. They, they desperately need a light. And if we can't be that light, then they are surely doomed. Convict us, mold us, and shape us into the image of Christ as we learn throughout this time, this time together. And be with us until Christ returns. We pray your kingdom come. Until then, may we do your, your will on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.